Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 54. It's titled, Do You Live to Work or Work to Live? The title for today's show and the subject matter came from an email I got a few weeks ago from Stephen. Stephen is a listener to the show, longtime listener, and a member of the Money for the Rest of Us Hub. And he left me this email and he said, he gave me what he said was a small food for thought. And then he raised a question. Quote, you have a continual theme of working to live life rather than living to work. My guess is that most of your your listeners do not have the luxury to stop, think, and figure out their next steps. And your thoughts, while completely valid, valid, may be from a perspective of someone with assets, while many of your listeners may not be in the same place. Now, Stephen was not mean-spirited in any way in his email. He was He was raising the question because he has listened to many of the episodes, such as Live Like You're Already Retired, The True Cost of a Thing, where I talked about leisure, and he is in a similar position as mine. He's sold a business and and has some assets where he has a little more flexibility to decide what types of projects he wants to work on. And so that got me thinking, is my message that I share in this show, is it applicable to all different types of individuals, not those that might be in a similar situation as me? And as I I reflected on this, I was on Farnoosh Tarabi's podcast, So Money, a few weeks ago, and I think the episode actually gets released the same day as this episode. It's probably episode 108, and she asked a lot of questions about childhood and kind of your money mantras, early money memories. And so I got to thinking about my my younger years and and where I am today. And the fact that my attitude toward work and living life, not for the sake of work, but only do work so that I can live life to the fullest... Did that come after I had the freedom to do that, or did that come from an early age? And as I've reflected on it, I realized that, that came very, very early. I watched my mom, a single mom, work really, really hard. She w- was divorced. She sold real estate. She sold maps. I think she sold advertising. She sold Tupperware. For a number of years, she actually, so she could stay at home, made dolls in the basement of our home that she would would sell at flea markets, garage sales. We did flea markets, and we were on food stamps. We were on welfare. And and I watched that. And as I I reflect on on my childhood, I realized that I was... I was happy. I I had, I mean, there were some difficult times in my childhood, but generally I was happy and I saw that I could be happy without having very little. And then when I was 19, I went to live in Mexico and I saw what real poverty was like. Now, in the United States, we were below the poverty level. And I, I don't know how much we made, but I, I suspect 
we we lived on well less than $10,000 a year, if that. But then when I got to Mexico and I saw people live uh, on much less, and I remember a particular family. I was in a town. I lived in a town called Isamal in the Yucatan, and we would go to this town and, and teach and, and help people called Sitolpech. And Sitolpech was this Mayan town, and there was probably four or 500 people that lived there. And there, there were not many jobs in the Yucatan at this time. The, the main job was working with Hennigan. And Hennigan is this sisal plant, looks a little bit like the plant they make tequila out of, whose name eludes me right now. And they use it, it was these big, long branches, and they would make rope out of it. And that's what Yucatan had done for years, for, for several centuries, actually, so about 200 years, making rope out of this Hennigan plant was the primary way of making a living. And the living was very, very sparse. And so most people in this village would either, you would go out and you'd work the Hennigan, and on the days that you didn't do Hennigan, you'd go out and you'd work your, your milpa, your cornfield. And, and these cornfields would be way far from the village because one of the characteristics of the Yucatan is the dirt is very, very porous, and it's it's a limestone shelf, and so it's not terribly vibrant dirt for growing things. And so you can only grow for a couple years. They didn't use a lot of fertilizer, so they would grow this corn way out, way out in, in the milpa, is what they would call it, in the forest, in the jungle, and they would grow corn or they would work this hennequin. But the Hennigan industry was dying, and it had been dying for decades because of nylon rope. It basically outpriced the market, and it just was not used the way that it has. And so it was a dying industry. The families were suffering. I knew this one family, and he made the choice. They didn't. They lived in a two-room house. They had four or five kids, all young. I think the youngest was probably a couple years older than me, or the oldest. So she was. She would have been maybe 14, and, and then from there on. And they, he, the father, would go travel to work in, in Cancun to, to do construction work, and he would come back every other week. But they made the decision to leave, which is a huge deal back then to pick up from your home village in the Yucatan, and they moved their family to, to the Yucatan, or to Cancun. And I didn't see him for, for many years. And then probably about 10 years later, I might have been 15, I went back. Our family was visiting Cancun, and I, I tracked this family down because I was just curious how, how things had worked out. They'd made, they took a big risk in leaving their village and setting up shop in a new town. And by then, their, their kids, most of them had grown. And what I saw was they, they had gone to school. The son was an accountant. The, the daughters, most of them had trained as hairstylist and cosmetology. And then they had opened their own little cosmetology or hair salon in their neighborhood. And I remember talking to the daughter, and, and by this time she was probably I don't know, maybe 30, and, and asking what what was different 
you know, why, how could you make those choices to leave and to live your life very different from most of those that had stayed back in the village? And, and do you miss that at all? And her response was, they had, they had essentially the, the desire for change the willingness to change, to recognize that life could be different and the willingness to take that risk. And she talked about those back in the village. And she says, I can't even relate to that anymore because I've lived in this bigger town and it seems like another life. But they made a different choice. They, they did what Steve mentioned in, in his emails they had they took the luxury they didn't have the luxury they took the luxury to stop and think and figure out the next steps that they didn't have to stay tied to a dying industry and a dying town they could choose a different path there's a quote by thoreau i've been reading thoreau as you know i've mentioned thoreau in a number of episodes i was been reading his journals from 1860. I wanted to read what he wrote at the end of his life. I've read Walden, which he wrote in that when he was 27 in, I think, the mid-1840s. Now it's 1860. He's 42, which is by no means old, but he's going to die or did die at age 44 of tuberculosis. And I was just interested, what, what was he out doing at age 42. And and he was doing a lot of what he was doing at 27. He was out exploring the community and he was was surveying plants and animals and just trying to learn as much as he could. But here's, here's his quote. He says, the mean and low values of everything depends on its convertibility into something else having nothing to do with its intrinsic value. And, and so what he's saying, the bottom price for everything is what is its conversion value into something else? Trees, beautiful trees can be converted into timber. That's their conversion value. What is it worth in the dollar? But everything has an intrinsic value, something that's much higher. He goes on, this world and our life have practically a similar value, only To the most, the value of life is what anyone will give you for a living. A man has his price in the South. How much is he worth in so many dollars? And so he has in the North. Many a man here sets out by saying, I will make so many dollars by such a time or before I die. And that is his price. As much as if he were knocked off for it by a Southern auctioneer. In other words, sold at auction. Everyone has their price as a tool, is what he's saying, which is well below their intrinsic value. And we can spend our life just working, and that's it. Or we can pause and take the luxury to step back and think, what is the next step? What can I do so that I can have more joy in my life? This family in Mexico, they were happy. And I saw a lot of very, very poor families that were happy. 
And, and you could see that joy, even though they didn't have very much. But those that made the choice to actually increase their opportunities were even happier. Just to give you an idea how poor people were in Mexico, and I was poor in the United States, but when I came back to my house in Cincinnati, I literally, it looked like a museum to me. It looked so clean, so polished, so rich, even though it was a pretty, pretty humble house. So it's all a question of perspective. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Tagovas all have in common? They all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. Whether you're doing a million, 10 million, or hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools you need to accelerate your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow all in one place, right from your phone or computer. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 19,000 companies. It's the last system you'll ever need. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com slash david. That's netsuite.com slash david, netsuite.com slash david. I read a book a couple weeks ago that my son mentioned, and it's called The Hojooki, H-O-J-O. K-I. And it was written by a Buddhist monk in Kyoto, Japan in the year 1200. The, the monk's name was Chomei. And Chomei had not been a monk his whole life. In fact, he grew up in a pretty privileged, prestigious situation. His father and, and his father's family were Shinto priests, which was the main religion in that part time of Japan. And his father was superintendent. He oversaw the, the Kamo Shrine in Kyoto, which, which still exists today. And so Chomei was destined to take over his father's position. At the age of seven, he was given a court rank, which was a sign of imperial favor that signaled the prestige and prominence that awaited him as he matured. He had a blessed life. But then, in his late teens, Chomei's father took ill and died. And the role of the Kamo Shrine superintendent passed to another family. So Chomei lost his place at, to be able to take over the shrine. And at the same time, the wealth that he was expecting through an inheritance was lost somehow by his grandmother. So his circumstances were completely changed. He was forced to make his way in the world without the wealth and the prestige that he expected. Chomei scraped together living through decades as a musician and a poet. And together with the other citizens of Kyoto, he suffered through wars, fires, famine, political upheaval that plagued Kyoto, the Japanese capital. But then he got a shot. When he was in his mid-40s, the emperor Gotoba selected Chomei among several 
sort of minor poets and other somewhat smart people to put together the Imperial Anthology, which I, I believe is kind of a history book. So Chome worked very hard. He was diligent. He worked four or five years. And when he was done, the emperor wanted to reward him for his efforts. And so he was offered a position as a Shinto priest at a smaller shrine that was connected to the Kamo Shrine Complex where his father had been the superintendent. This was cool. But then the superintendent of the Kamo Shrine objected to this position and and said, no, this is not going to happen. He made the case to the emperor that his own son was much more qualified for this position, much more worthy of it, was the right person for it. And Chomei didn't get that opportunity. And then he was offered this even minor position. But by then, Chomei was frustrated. And he abandoned all thoughts of obtaining rank and wealth. He shaved his head and beard, and he became a Buddhist monk. He wrote, All told, I spent 30 troubled years withstanding the vagaries of the world. At each new setback, I understood how wretched my luck is. And so in my 50th year, I came to leave my home and turn my back on the world. I had never had a wife and children, so there was no close ties that were difficult to break. I had no rank and salary to forego. What was there there to hold me to the world? So he joined a community of monks. But then in 1208, he left that to live alone in a 10-foot square hut that he built himself. It was 7 feet high, 10-foot square, and he wrote about it in the Hojoki. Sounds like Walden, doesn't it? Very, very similar. In fact, he describes this hut and its contents with the same mixture of pride, joy, and detail that Thoreau does in Walden. And that's where he lived the rest of his life. He passed his days meditating, writing, playing music. He gathered food. And he writes of those back in the capital of Kyoto who spent their wealth, time, and worry building great houses to impress others, only to see them burn to ashes in the great fire that swept through the city. Here's a quote. And how many houses have been lost in all those fires? In all this, my mere passing shelter has remained tranquil and safe from fears. Small it may be, but there is a bed to sleep on at night and a place to sit in the daytime. As a simple place to myself, it lacks nothing. Chomei was content with his little hut. He was content with his life. He was satisfied until he would travel to Kyoto the capital, and he would see the large houses, and he would see and look at how he was dressed in very rough clothes. And he says, when I chance go down into the capital, I am ashamed of my lowly beggar status. But once back here, I again pity those who chase after the sordid rewards of the world. One thing that leads to unhappiness is when we compare ourselves to others. I mentioned that Those that I knew in Mexico that were very, very poor seemed happy. Perhaps part of that happiness was because they didn't realize what was missing. Or not even missing, what they didn't have, the wealth that could be, what the the other, most didn't have a car. Most, if you're lucky, you had a bicycle. And, but maybe, maybe they weren't happy. 
They seemed happy, but I, I, I can't step into the heads. But they certainly seemed content. Cholmei seemed content when he is home in his small hut, meditating, playing guitar, observing nature. Less happy when he would go to the capital and see what he was lacking. But then he would get back and he said, I love my hut, my lonely dwelling. But then, with time, his pride he had in his, in his small possessions and his simple life began to bother him. He writes, The Buddha's essential teaching is to relinquish all attachment. This fondness for my hut I now see must be air. And my attachment to a life of seclusion and peace is an impediment to rebirth. How could I waste my days like this describing useless pleasures? He doesn't really have an answer. He feels unsatisfied because the goal of Buddhism was to become unattached. And he was very, very attached to his little hut and his little simple life of observing and not having to worry about anybody else, just himself and his hut. Chomei lacked balance. In his quest to give up worldly attachments to all things physical, he also gave away the intangibles that bring meaning to life. Family, friends, service to others, a cause to embrace. Without these greater goods and higher purposes, our focus naturally turns to worldly pleasures and materialistic pursuits, even if we own very, very little. He owned hardly anything, yet he was still attached to it and ultimately unsatisfied with his life. And he thought that dissatisfaction was because he was so attached to the meager things that he had. I think he was dissatisfied because he hadn't Broaden it out. And even as he, as he began to own less, he hadn't replaced what he owned with more meaningful experiences, more meaningful opportunities to help and serve and to build community and to build relationship with friends and family. In some ways, he was doing exactly what Thoreau warned against. He was seeing life through a lens of materialism. What is the conversion value in yen of the things that I own? He was attached to them. He had joined them. But he didn't look at the intrinsic value of things, their meaning beyond their mere cost. He wasn't looking at the experiences he could get and the joy he could bring by serving others. Thoreau also wrote in his journal in 1860, the less you get the happier and richer you are. The rich man's son gets coconuts, the poor man walnuts. But the worst of it is that the former never goes of coconutting, so he never gets the cream of the coconuts, as the latter does the cream of the walnut. The poor man goes out and finds the best walnuts and has a great experience doing it. He gets them when they're ultimately ripe. The rich man gets an imported product that's many, many days old and not at its prime and misses out on the experiences of actually achieving and gathering the nuts. Now, clearly, it's an analogy or a metaphor, 
but I think it's applicable. We don't need to have wealth to have the luxury of making different choices. Now, I admit, I mean, there are some, The Economist this week, there's an article, series, several articles on boat people, people that are trying to escape Western Africa for a better life, trying to just get some coconuts or walnuts or whatever enough to eat. Now, they are not in the position necessarily to be able to work just to live. They are living every single day to try to get work so that they can get enough to eat. But most of us are not in that situation. We have way more flexibility than we realize. Kevin Kelly, who's a co-founder of Wired Magazine and just a, a brilliant writer and, and thinker, talks about his early days when he traveled in Japan and with no money at all. And photographed, this was, I think this was in the 70s, he was doing this. And what he learned from that experience was how little he could live on. And he realized that he could survive on very, very little. And that opened up such freedom for him to take risk. When I was in college, I decided, I was three years in at the University of Cincinnati, I decided to go out for a semester or two, maybe longer, to BYU. So I transferred, and I drove. I went with a friend, and I thought it'd be kind of cool to go with his friend because she was a, a she was a girl I liked. But then she brought her uncle and aunt, and her uncle and aunt rode in a different car, and I, and I rode with my friend. And and his, his, this uncle was he didn't like to stop ever. This is a 30-hour drive. We drove 30 straight hours to Utah. Uh, and we did stop when my front tire blew in St. Louis and got a new tire. And then we would stop occasionally to eat, but we did not stop to sleep. And so when I got to Utah, I was a nervous wreck. And I remember laying down in my friend's apartment because I had nowhere to live. I had no job. And I knew I had to start classes the next Monday, and I remember waking, waking up very, very nervous. And because I just I was gripped with fear because I didn't know what to do, what the next step was. I knew well, I knew I needed a place to live. I didn't know where, and I didn't know work. But I made it through that semester. I found a place to live, and I sold plasma couple times a week in order to get enough money to go to the grocery to buy some canned chili. And I survived. And at the end of the semester, I got married. And I realized, just like Kevin Kelly, I could live on very, very little if I chose. And I've never forgot that. And I think that we all have, once you get above a basic level of sustenance, you have choices and you have the flexibility. I've had only one job where I lived in order to go to work because I needed the money. I lasted four days. I was working for a bank. It was a temp job. My my responsibility was to fill out the same one-day form for mortgage applicants who had got rejected. And, and I, I was literally going nuts because it was it was just fill out the form all day long. I got fired. And, and my wife, LaPrille, 
she looked at me like I was an absolute loser. She was worried. The temp agency worked, but I couldn't do it. I could not, even in our somewhat poverty, stick with a job that I couldn't stand and I hated. And I hope that, that most of you in this audience are in the position that you have a choice and you realize that you have the luxury to not spend your days simply working, that there's more intrinsic value in you than just being a tool. So that's episode 54. Do you live to work or work to live? This episode was a little more philosophical, not the hardcore finance and economics that some other episodes are. I tried to do a mixture. I actually was on a early retirement forum. Somebody, one kind listener had had put it, uh, Ray actually had put a post on an early retirement forum and so, so saying this was a, his favorite podcast and I thank you for doing that. But I was reading some of the comments and some people liked the show and one one guy wrote, this, this is terrible because all he does is spend time telling stories and I didn't learn anything. And sometimes I feel like the show is too much focused on nuts and bolts of investing in in the economy, and we need to step back and take that luxury to step back and realize why we even why money even matters in terms of the joy and the eternal value of our lives. So you can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's awesome. You can sign up for my insider's guide. I'll email those show notes to you, and that's where I'm answering listener questions, providing other valuable content. We have 149 members of the Money for the Rest of Us Hub, a core group of members. I mentioned Stephen is a member. They joined the Hub in order to get some help on their investing. Not specific investment advice, but they're getting context and understanding with what is going on with markets and the economy, and that helps them make better investment decisions. It helps them take more risk in environments which that are more conducive to risk, and it helps them to pull back risk when that day comes, and it will, in order to protect their capital. And that's why they use the hub as well as to continue to, to learn these very, very important concepts. So you can get information for that at moneyfortherestofushub.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not provide you with any type of investment advice. In fact, I barely talked about investing at all in this particular episode. This is Simply General Education. I hope you enjoy it. Any questions, please email me, jd at jdavidstein.com. Have a great week.